Thank you for that, Stephanie. She wrote that song, right? Yeah, very beautiful. Well, it's, it's a blessing to, to get to hear from you guys what's on your hearts and what God is doing. And, and just, I, I just think it's amazing to see how faithful he is to us, you know. And, and we know that he's faithful to, to us as individuals, but it's also good to hear how he's faithful to our friends, to our, to our body at large, and to, to hear the testimonies of one another. Um, I don't know about you, but I thought it was really nice uh, earlier this week and, and really again this morning that we've gotten to taste a little bit of autumn weather. Um, I had my first pumpkin spice latte on Monday morning, and I was like just begging that the weather would stay, and of course it didn't because this is Texas, but you know, we got to take what we can get. Um, I I know that deer season is right around the corner, and the only reason why I know this, deer hunting season, is not because I'm a hunter, but because I looked that up this morning to prepare for this story, just because I needed some sort of tie-in. Can't just jump from pumpkin spice lattes to deer hunting. But um, I went on my first hunting trip when I was a freshman in college, so I was 19 before I ever went hunting. Uh, That's pretty late in life compared to a lot of people. Um, My dad, my brother, and I, we drove out to West Texas, kind of near Uvalde, I believe it was, to go deer hunting on uh, a friend of ours' lease. And after getting there really late at night and not getting any sleep, we got up the next morning and we got into the the truck together with with, uh, my my dad's friend. And we went to the first deer stand and dropped off my, my dad and my brother, who was 11 at the time. And then I got back in the truck, or, or stayed in the truck, with my dad's friend, and we drove on up the road, and we stopped at, an, at another stand, and he handed me a rifle. And he didn't really say much, and I thought, okay, well, I guess he's going to grab his gun, and we're going to go up here and sit in this stand together, and he's going to teach me how to hunt, and I'm going to shoot my first deer. And he did none of that. He literally handed me a rifle, got back in his truck, and left. <laughs> and to a guy who had only shot a BB gun up until this point in his life, I was nervous because I had no idea what I was doing. I, I had no idea how to shoot this gun. I had no idea when, what to do once you got in the stand. So I got up there and I just kind of sat and waited and looked and hoped I'd see something. And all of a sudden in the middle of this eternal silence, if you, if you know me well, you know I'm not a patient person. Uh, It felt like an eternity, but in the middle of this silence, all of a sudden, the loudest noise I had ever heard in my life happened, and I realized that I had caused that noise. So I thought the gun was on safety, but the gun was not on safety, and I didn't know how hair-sensitive a rifle trigger is. So I blew a hole probably about that big in the top of the deer stand, which was was covered in like tin or some sort of metal. And so my ears were ringing so loudly and I was so scared that, I was just so shocked that I didn't shoot myself and so thankful. And so um, to make matters worse, I just had to sit there and I was like, well, I guess I've just scared off any deer that were gonna come my way. So I sat there for what seemed like days, it was probably an hour. And finally, the truck comes back down the road, and it was like the best sight I've ever seen. I get back in the truck, and the guy's like, well, I knew you didn't shoot yourself because by the sound that I heard, it didn't hit your head if it made that much noise. And so we drive down the road, and 
we go to pick up my dad and my little brother, and this didn't really surprise me, but when we got there, my brother had shot his first deer. He had also shot a turkey. And so, you know, I shot the deer stand. He shoots living, breathing things. And then later that night, to make matters worse, we, you know, we went and took a nap and did whatever you do while you wait for the hunt that night. And that night, of course, I, I was so scared, I didn't even really know what to do, so I didn't even try to shoot anything. But when we went and finished our night hunt, my brother had also shot a hog. So he shoots three animals, I shoot a deer stand. And so what I learned, or what, I, what was reinforced through my hunting trip is that I am not a hunter. And, and the reason why I had so much trouble is because I was trying to be something I wasn't. I was trying to do something that I didn't know how to do. I wasn't prepared for, for hunting. And, and I, would, I would argue that we all get into trouble when we try to be something that we're not, when we try to do something that we don't know how to do. Um, I think I would give you three examples of, of that truth. First of all, white people have been proving this on dance floors for a long, long time. <laughs> We don't know what we're doing. We have a lot of fun not knowing what we're doing. But uh, secondly, I think you can see that example when people try to cook things that they don't know how to cook. Um, I'll save the story for the, the, the detailed version for another time, but Lexi and I one, try, one time tried to make beignets in our own home kitchen, and it was a disaster. Uh, I think we ended up throwing them away and driving to go pick up donuts or something. But uh, the, th the third example, I think, would be if you just watch American Idol, like in the early, early couple of episodes of each season, like the people that are on there that are supposedly singing are not doing anything of the sort uh, because they don't know how to sing. They're not singers, but they think that they are. But we, we all get into trouble when we try to be somebody we're not, when we try to do things we don't know how to do. And we need to live a life that lines up with our identity. We need to live in agreement with who we are. And last week, we talked about how we have hope because Jesus has secured our salvation. And because of him, because of our, our, the fact that we are saved, we are no longer sinners estranged from our Father, but we have become children of God. That is our primary identity. We are children of of God. And as children of God, it's important that we learn how to live in such a way that is consistent with who we are. It's important for us to know what it means to live like a child of God. And that's what I want to want to wrestle with today. This morning I want to I want to wrestle with the question, what kind of God or, or what kind of life, excuse me, does God want you to live as a child of God? What kind of life does he want you to live? So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in 1 Peter. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we'll read through 25. If you need a Bible, there's some blue ones there in front of you. As we look at 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25 this morning, we're going to learn three things about the kind of life that God wants us to live. I believe Peter has three things that he teaches us about that life. But before we, we uh, read that, I want to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to do what we did I think a couple weeks back, um, not last week, but a, a couple weeks ago, we stood as we read, and I want to do that again today in honor of the fact that this is the living word of God. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts. We're excited to hear about your movement in our body, the way that you are doing things in our midst, that you are blessing our brothers and sisters 
in, in mighty and powerful ways. We are reminded again this morning of your faithfulness, that you are the God who is true to your promises, that you keep your word. And God, I, I, I ask that as we spend time in, in, in your scriptures and in, in your word this morning, that you would come and meet with us, that you would come and reveal yourself to us, that you would show us more clearly who you are and who we are because of your son. Would you, would you come and use this time to draw us closer to yourself? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand as we read this. Verse 13 of 1 Peter 1, it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who, is call, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified yourselves, your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Y'all can take a seat. So in, first, in verse 13, Peter begins this section with the word, therefore. And anytime you see that, you, you know that this passage is connected to the verses that preceded it. And so what really happens here is in the first 12 verses, he, he is using, he's, he's using the indicative to talk about what is true about us because of what God has done for us in Christ. We have been born again to a living hope. And then in these verses, he switches to the imperative. He starts to give us commands, instructions for how to live in light of the fact that we have been born again to this living hope. And he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the order is important. I think I've brought this up before in a sermon, but it's really important for us to see that God never... In the, in the New Testament epistles, the writers don't ever give us instruction before they first tell us who we are and tell us what God has done for us. And so our instructions, our commands that we are given to live lives that are in accordance with who God is and his holiness and righteousness are founded upon the fact that we have a new identity, the fact that we have become children of God. And the order is really, really important because without God's intervention, without Christ's sacrifice for us and the Spirit's enablement, it is impossible for us to live a life that is pleasing to God. And so Peter, in these verses, he instructs us, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. And he tells us this because we aren't prone to set our hope fully on Christ. If you're like me, you set some of your hope on Jesus, some of it on your finances, some of it on your spouse or your kids, some of it on your career or fill in the blank with other things. We kind of divvy up our hope and we kind of derive some of it from, from each of these different places. But he tells us to set our hope fully on Jesus. And in order to do that, he tells us to prepare our minds for action, first of all, and he tells us to be sober-minded. I was trying to think of an example of, of this, and, and, and hang with me here. I think you'll get where I'm going. But I put on some sympathy weight while Lexi was pregnant. I put on about 15 pounds that I lost last year. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, I made a goal of going to the gym a certain amount of times per week. And then this week, I realized, okay, going to the gym is great and all, but if I keep eating burgers every day, I'm never going to lose any weight. And so I started doing what I hate to do, but it's the only way I can lose weight. I started counting calories. And it is laborious, and it's just awful. But what I realized is that in order for me to lose weight, it's not going to happen automatically. I have to set my mind to it, and then I have to prepare myself for action. I've got to come up with a game plan and then follow through with that. And I think what Peter is saying here, whenever he says to prepare our minds for action and to be sober-minded, he's saying, you have to make it your aim. You have to make it your goal that you are going to set your hope on Christ. And then you've got to come up with a plan for how you're going to do that. And so he's getting at the reality that we don't just drift towards finding our hope only in Christ. It's something we have to mentally resolve to and ask the Spirit to help us with. It takes intentionality and it takes commitment. In verses 14 through 16, Peter goes on and he says this. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? It means that we are set apart, wholly dedicated to God, given all of us to all that he is. And Peter addresses us as obedient children. And I think it's important for us to understand we're called to be holy because as God's children, we have already been made holy. Like I said before, he's actually telling us to be what he's already made us. And in God's eyes, we're holy. But he wants us to, in our lives and in the way that we interact with others, in our conduct, in our thoughts, to live holy lives, to increasingly become what he has made us in Christ practically. So, so we're already positionally holy. We're already declared righteous, declared holy by God, and he wants us to live as though that is true. And his standard, he adds, he adds there, he says, be holy in all your conduct because the standard is complete holiness because God is completely holy. And that's the, this is really the first thing that I, I believe we see about the kind of life that God wants you to live, the kind of life he wants me to live. God wants you to live a holy life. He wants you to live a holy life. Look at verse 17. It says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
Now, it's not really popular in our day and age to think of God as judge. I mean, nobody really likes judges. When you have to appear before a judge, you've usually done something wrong, and you know that you're facing some sort of consequence. But God is judge. He's also father, and we like that side of, of who he is. We like that aspect of his character. But God is also judge. And that means that he does weigh and he does take into account the actions and the things that we do. And thankfully for those of us who are in Christ, his wrath, his judgment has been poured out on his son. But it doesn't mean that he doesn't still take notice of it. It doesn't mean that he's not still looking at us to see how we live. That he doesn't take notice of it. That it doesn't matter to him. It does matter to him. And Peter's point, whenever he says to conduct ourselves with fear, isn't that we should sit around worried or that we should be constantly uh, afraid of the fact that God might strike us down, but he's saying that we should live in such a way where we recognize that we are accountable to God and we're accountable to a God that loves us, who has done everything he could to save us. And so that's supposed to be motivation for us to live a life that's not only holy but also reverent, that is consciously aware and actually takes that into account into in, in the sense that it it really impacts the way that we we view life the way that we live it should make a difference to us that god is who he is that he's worthy of our worship then in verses 18 and 19 peter says this he says knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the motivation for living this life of reverence, this life of worship, is remembering that we were prisoners to sin, remembering that Christ paid our ransom with his own perfect, precious, spotless blood. He set us free not by paying some price of silver or gold or money, but his own very life. And to really drive the point home, Peter knew some of his readers were Jewish, and so he adds in there, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, taking them back to the story that they knew very well, back to the Passover lamb when the Israelites, during the 10th plague of the Exodus, had to put the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost of their home so that the angel of death as it passed through the city would skip over their house. He's making a connection saying, listen, Christ is the true Passover lamb. He has caused God's wrath to skip over your soul because you have placed your faith in him and appropriated his blood over your heart. If, if, if what Christ has done for us hasn't impacted the way that we live, we haven't spent enough time meditating and treasuring and, and really relishing in what God has done for us. It should be a thing that motivates us towards holy living. We're not motivated by some sort of fear or, or some, some kind of... The, the right kind of fear is is fear that God is powerful, fear that God is good, fear that he has done so much for us and that we don't want to make light of that. It's not that he is, is, is out to get us. If you want to live a life that honors God, 
it's not going to happen in finally realizing that, you know, he's, he's so scary. It's in realizing that he's so good and that he's been so good to you through Christ. In verses 20 and 21, he goes on to tell us more about who Christ is. It says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your, hope and fa- your, your faith and hope are in God. I think this is really important because what Peter's getting at when he says that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world is that Christ's death on the cross, this plan of redemption that God has, was not a plan B. It was a part of God's eternal will. It was a part of God's eternal plan. And that should be good news for people who were reading this, Peter's original readers. It was good news to them because they were going through some pretty dark days, and they were suffering and going through persecution. And it's good news for us because what that means is that Like Jesus, we can take comfort in knowing that God is sovereign over our own suffering, our own pain. Our plights, our difficulties aren't outside of his plan. They're somehow, some way a part of it. And just, here's the the really, really important thing. And just as Jesus' faithful suffering, his faithful obedience resulted in his glorification ours will too. We can look at Jesus as a pattern that when we are faithful through our own trials, God will glorify us as well. We have something waiting for us. We have rewards waiting for us as well. And so the second thing that we learned this morning is that God wants us to live reverent lives. He wants us, he wants you, he wants me to live reverent lives. He wants us to live lives that are worshipful, that are in accordance with with the salvation that we have, that we've been bought with the blood of of Christ. I want to look at verses 22 through 25 to discover the the third and final thing about the way God wants us to live. Verse 22, it says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So like I said before, Peter's readers were experiencing difficulty. And when you go through difficulty, it's pretty normal, it's part of the human thing to begin to doubt God's promises, to begin to doubt if he is going to come through, because what you're experiencing is, seems in the moment to be at odds with these promises and these, these uh, things, of this guarantee of deliverance. When you haven't experienced it yet, you begin to wonder, is it really going to come? And in order to encourage them, Peter quotes this passage from Isaiah 40, Verses 6 and 8. And what's really interesting is these words were originally written to Judah in the 8th century B.C., but prophetically directed to those who would be exiles in Babylon two centuries later. 
Peter's readers were exiles too. And so he takes this text that was written to exiles and reapplies it to those who are experiencing their own exile. People that were needing hope, needing to know that God is faithful, that he would keep his promises. And he reminds them that God was faithful and he kept the promises of ones long ago and that is the same God and he will be faithful to them. He reminds them that all the glory, the might, the splendor of Rome and these other empires that they were under would one day perish. They would one day wither and fall because they are built on humans who are like grass. It will wither. Unlike that, unlike that, God himself and his promises are eternal. They're powerful. They're everlasting, imperishable, and indestructible. And that is encouraging because when life is hard and there are days and sometimes seasons, not just days, but seasons that feel unbearable because they are. They, they, really, they really, really feel unbearable because they are. In those moments, God is with us and he has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And his love for us is unchanging. And that gives us hope. So Peter's basic idea really in these last few verses is that because we have been born again, because we've been purified by our own belief and obedience to the gospel, God's imperishable living word, it should result in us loving one another. Once we realize all that God has done for us, once we realize that we have received his goodness, that he's faithful to us and his promises are true, it should motivate us to be like him and pour out the love that we've received. It's not ours to keep, but it's ours to share. And the third thing I I believe we see is that God wants us to live a loving life. He wants us to live a holy life, a reverent life, and a loving life. Through the gospel, we've become children of God. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you and I have been brought back to God. We've been reconciled to him. We've been restored as his children. And that's an incredible privilege but it's also an incredible calling. So it's not just our identity, but it's also our calling. And so what does that mean? What does that look like? What is God asking us to do? We've talked about it this morning, but I want to be really clear. God is calling us to live like an obedient child because we are his obedient children. He's calling you to live like an obedient child of God because you are an obedient child of God. If you've placed the gospel, your, your faith in the gospel, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you are his child, and he has made you one so that you would live for him. It's not just directed towards our past, it's directed towards our future. And living like him, like we've talked about, means that we live holy lives. It means that we take everything that we are, every part of our life, our finances, our dreams, our fears, our families, And we surrender that to him and we devote it to him. It also means that we live reverent lives. It means that we remember that we've been bought, not with silver or gold, but with Christ's own blood. And I think the way that this, the the, the verse that really captures how remembering that and, and focusing on that can help us change is Romans 12, 1 and 2. We read it earlier. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And finally, living like an obedient child of God means that we live a loving life. So the question I have for you this morning is, how are you currently intentionally loving other people? Who are you going out of your way to be a blessing to? Who are you putting yourself out for, expecting nothing in return? Because I believe that's really the pinnacle. That's, this is really the, the primary area where we show that we are children of God. Because the world does not live for others. The world lives for self. Those who aren't children of God live for self. But as children of God, we are called to live for others. And so who are you living for? Who are you going out of your way to serve this, this week? If you're not doing that, why not ask God to show you who you can do that for today? Now this sermon, most of it really has been directed towards those of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, who are already believers. And I want to be very clear. If you find yourself here today and you're not uh, a follower of Christ, if you're not a believer, don't try to do these things that I've talked about. Because like I said before, you, you will not be able to successfully do this because you don't have the nature, you don't have the power to live this way. In order to live this way, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and that only happens after you place your faith in Christ. And so if you haven't done that, today's a great day to do that. And it would be much more important for you to hear the call that we are all imperfect, we all don't measure up, but God did something about it. He sent his own son to this earth to live the perfect life that we fail to live, to die on our place in the cross, and he raised him from the dead, proving that he had defeated sin and death once and for all. And by trusting in Christ, you can become a child of God. That's the first step of all of this. You can't do all of this stuff if you aren't a child of God. And if you aren't, today that can change. You can trust Christ, and that's what I would ask you to do. That's the most important decision you could ever make. God longs for us to become his children, to be his children. And those of us who are, he longs for us to live like it. In order to do so, it takes being intentional. It takes relying on the Spirit. God has given us everything we need for that. The question is, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to be prepared for action? Are we going to decide that this is what we're going to be about or not? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the chance to share it with my friends. And I I pray that you would use it to call us to greater devotion to you. God, you're worthy of everything. You're worthy of all that we are and all that we have. I pray that you would help me to live my life in light of that truth. That you would help each one of us to remember that you have purchased us not with silver or gold, but with the precious, spotless, perfect blood of your Son. Would the gospel motivate us to live for you, to live for your glory? Would every part of us just shout with all that we are that you are good, that you are Lord of all? Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here. Will you be with us as we go out this week? Will you help us to walk in, in relationship with one another, to help each other? This life that we live, this calling as, as your children is not to be lived out in isolation, but in community. And so we ask that you would help us to spur one another 
to love and good deeds this very week. In Jesus' name, amen.